This is They Create Worlds, episode 146, story time with a book, two. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we will be sitting down with Alex as he reads to us from the Book of Legends, the Book of Comprehension, the guide to ultimate video game history, They Create Worlds. But wait, Jeffrey, I thought They Create Worlds was a podcast that released twice a month. What's this about a book? You see, way back in the day, you wrote a book, and before that, you even wrote a blog which you sporadically update now. Very sporadically. Very, very sporadically. Regularly for a couple of months, and then very sporadically. Yes. So, you write a book, you wrote some articles, and then, if it wasn't for me, the podcast would just meander, because I constantly poke you and go, record, 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 record! It would be a sporadically updated podcast. Though the real problem really wouldn't be getting me in the chair. The real problem would be getting me to do all the editing after the podcast was recorded. (laughs) That's your uh, grandest contribution to everything, is having the dedication to get this out month after month after month for six years. In our last episode, we just celebrated that sixth anniversary. So I get a vacation, right? (laughs) I get a move halfway across the country, which is why this week, rather than doing one of our typical deep dives on a specific topic in video game history and how it relates to the larger industry and occasionally larger culture, we are going to do our second reading from the book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, which was published back in 2019 and is still available from the publisher CRC Press, as well as Amazon and other major online retailers. The They Create Worlds brand is something that I created first for the blog that Jeffrey alluded to, and then which I also planned to make the title of my book, and then it became the title of the podcast as well, because I am apparently a transmedia brand now. My Q score is not very high, nobody knows who I am, but I have a brand, so hooray. And it is my job to pimp that brand for all it's worth. Huzzah. Today, because of that forthcoming cross-country move and the need to do some episodes that are a little lighter on in-depth research on my part so that we can just get a bunch recorded so that Jeffrey has lots and lots of audio to edit over the coming couple of months, we are for the second time going to do a reading from the book. We did one right when it came out as well. We're going to read the chapter. I'm also going to describe some of the research that went behind this or that. So it's kind of like an annotated reading of the chapter. We won't just read it straight through. That should fill some time. I might even ask some questions. Oh, no. No one said there would be questions. Oh, yes. This interview is over. This is your punishment. (laughs) You're going to read from a book. I'm going to ask you some questions about the book. Sounds good. First question, though, is. What chapter will we be reading from if we already have the book and wish to follow along? (laughs) Absolutely. The reading I chose this time is one that I chose because our uh, 
frequent collaborator and friend of the show, Ethan Johnson, the oft-invoked, considers this to be the best chapter in the entire book. I certainly think it's one of the best chapters as well. I have several that I'm uh, fond of and a couple that I'm not so fond of. But I would agree that even if this is not the best chapter in the book, it's one of the absolute best chapters. This is chapter 32, uh, beginning on page 475, Active Television, which tells the story of the founding of Activision. I think what makes this chapter particularly effective, and probably why Ethan uh, considers it to be the best, is that I was able to interview almost all of the major players in this story. So I got a lot of firsthand accounts that way. And I have a trial transcript from one of the Magnavox patent lawsuits that gives a blow-by-blow of a lot of the important events leading up to the founding of the company and the beginning of its creation of third-party games for the Atari VCS. So because I had all of those details from all of those great sources, I was able to do a pretty in-depth blow-by-blow narrative about how this whole thing came about. That makes for a compelling chapter of the book. Other people have told the story of the founding of Activision, Those other stories, articles, whatever, are by and large correct. They're not full of horrible inaccuracies. I think it's fair to say that no one has gone into nearly the depth I have just because of the wealth of sources I was able to make use of in order to put this chapter together. We've talked about the founding a little bit, but we may not have gone completely in depth. And even if we had, some of this material is probably material I discovered after we recorded that information. There should be some new information from a podcast perspective in here as well as uh, just another nice look at the book and some of the information it has to offer. I have my popcorn. I have my notes. I have my blanket around me to keep me warm. Tell me a story. All right. Chapter 32. Active Television. In September 1978, Atari's computer project faced a crisis. The company had publicly announced it would introduce the personal computer system at the January CES, but the programmers hired to develop its operating system, or OS, had failed to provide a working piece of software. Project leader Jay Miner could tell the OS would not be ready for the debut of the computer absent drastic action. George Simcock, the head of the VCS programming group, saved the day by volunteering three of his own programmers to complete the job. Alan Miller... Larry Kaplan, and David Crane. Most of the chapters in They Create Worlds start with a vignette of some kind, sometimes directly related to the rest of the chapter, sometimes slightly tangential, but then serving as a scene setter and introduction to what's to come. So in this case, the intro here is obviously not going to be about Activision, but the intro is going to very prominently feature the key people who founded Activision. It serves as a way of background and introduction to some of the players, while also telling a story I couldn't fit in elsewhere about the development of the Atari personal computer, which became the Atari 400-800. These three were not chosen at random. They were some of the finest programmers working on the VCS. Kaplan, the first VCS programmer hired, had figured out the trick for displaying more sprites on the screen using HMOVE. Obviously, that's something I talked about earlier in the book, which is why I didn't Go into detail on HMOVE here. Miller, a North Carolina native with an electrical engineering degree from UC Berkeley, specialized in large-scale computer systems in college and worked extensively with hardware before joining Atari. 
developing a control system for a lumber mill, doing computer contracts with NASA, and working for National Semiconductor. His 1978 basketball game for the VCS was a graphical marvel by the standards of the system, with reasonably human-looking players dribbling and shooting in a one-on-one competition. We talked about that game before. It's really fascinating that he could even get the VCS to do that. Yeah, it really was. He's very talented. Kaplan and Miller were part of the first batch of programmers hired to work on the VCS. David Crane joined in the second wave. A native of Indiana, Crane began dabbling with electronics when he was 12 years old and once built an unbeatable tic-tac-toe machine for a science fair. He was also an avid game player who often modified the rules of the board games that he played with his friends. After graduating from DeVry School of Technology in Phoenix, Arizona, he took a job with National Semiconductor Designing Linear Circuits, where he worked with Alan Miller. They remained in touch after Miller joined Atari, as they lived in the same apartment complex and often played tennis together. In mid-1977, Miller asked Crane to proofread an Atari job ad, and Crane decided to apply. He joined the programming group in fall 1977 and created three games, Outlaw, Canyon Bomber, and Slot Machine. Over the course of 12 grueling weeks, Miller, Kaplan, and Crane wrote and debugged a complete operating system for the personal computer system, with a little assistance from fellow VCS programmer Ian Shepard, former VCS programmer Gary Palmer, and a consultant named Harry Stewart. They also selected a basic for the system, choosing a firm called Shepardson Microsystems rather than Microsoft, because Kaplan did not like the company's 6502 basic had been machine converted from the 8080 version rather than coded from scratch. Even at this early date, Microsoft was the standard in programming languages, but Kaplan decided to be all elitist about it and was like, this is converted code. Go away. <laughs> the trio also developed some of the first games for the system, with Miller contributing a port of his basketball game and Kaplan providing a port of Super Breakout and a drawing program called Video Easel. I also have a footnote here at this point that says Crane also developed a product that bundled a port of Canyon Bomber with a take on the classic mainframe artillery game, but it was not released at that time. Kaplan, Miller, and Crane finished their work on the OS just as Ray Kassar was assuming control of Atari as CEO. The beginning of his tenure was marked by a freeze on much of the company's short-term R&D and design work, so the company could focus on exploiting the VCS and bringing the 400 and 800 personal computer systems to market. This decision sent shockwaves through the Atari product development apparatus. Bob Brown, who had been eased out as director of microelectronics in 1978 and placed in charge of an R&D group called the Advanced Projects Division, left the company in January when his department was cut. Larry Wagner, who also worked in the Advanced Products Group, followed him out the door. This is an interesting thing to bring up here for a second as an annotation. There's a lot of confusion about the beginning of Ray Kassar's time at the company and his relationship with R&D. Basically, there was an article about Atari written in 1982 in one of the video game magazines called From Cutoffs to Pinstripes that actually gave a pretty in-depth, all things considered, look at Atari at the time and, and interviewed several interesting people. One of the things they talk about is how Ray Kassar cut the R&D team at the beginning of 1979 when he joined the company. There's a quote from an anonymous person being like, when I first heard this was happening, I couldn't believe it. How can you cut R&D? People extrapolated that over the years to mean that Kassar came in and basically axed all of R&D, which was certainly not true because Atari still had Cyan Engineering in Grass Valley. Later on, Ray Kassar hired Dr. Alan Kay to be head of R&D, a very important individual in computer history. 
not so important in Atari's history, but in wider computer history, incredibly important individual. So I always knew it was not true that he cut all R&D. That was clearly false. I was very confused by the same thing that confused everyone that made those claims, which is, well, sure, he didn't cut all R&D, but what did he cut in 1979? He obviously cut something. He fired some people, or this story wouldn't have appeared in this article, because we have direct quotes, so we know that Bloom, the guy that wrote the article, Stephen Bloom, who later wrote Video Invaders, was not making this up. So clearly something was cut in 1979, and the answer to this remained a mystery until just before I published the book here in 2019. Kevin Bunch, who does the wonderful Atari archives where he goes game by game and kind of gives the history of every game on the VCS. I mean, it's still in process. He's in 1981 now on YouTube contacts and interviews as many people as he can that were involved with the Atari VCS games. And he became the first person that I know of to interview Craig Nelson, who is a very interesting individual who was one of the founders of Starpath, which then merged with Epics. And and we talked about that in our Epics episode. He's a guy that worked at Atari and who worked at then Starpath slash Epics, who just hadn't really been interviewed. And Kevin was able to track him down to an interview. Craig was the one that finally provided the missing piece. He's the one that first alerted us to the existence of this thing called the Advanced Projects Group. Basically, Bob Brown, who was mentioned in this excerpt here, had been in charge of just about everything to do with the creation of the VCS. He was in charge of what they called the Microelectronics Department, which was responsible for chip design, hardware design, and the advanced prototype stuff, and it also had the VCS programmers under him. This was separate from consumer engineering, which was something that they also had and was more involved in kind of the mechanical and analog engineering, you know, assembling the final product. So microelectronics was a thing, and Bob Brown was in charge of it. And what happened is there were some political fights behind the scenes, and Bob Brown ended up getting removed from his role of being in charge of all of this microelectronic stuff. And then he was given his own R&D group within the company, which was this advanced products division that was working on this and that that they hoped to bring to market. They also created a couple of games, like the chess game that had more advanced AI. This was an R&D group within the company, but it was not the main R&D group of the company, which was still kind of, you know, what was going on with Cyan Engineering and whatnot. They had other R&D. What Kassar cut was Bob Brown's group specifically, which was a little bit redundant. They were working on projects that they hoped to put into production. You know, they had other R&D groups too. So I think Ray Kassar probably just looked over everything and was like, well, this group seems redundant, so let's get rid of them. But that was not getting rid of all R&D at the company. It was just getting rid of one relatively small team led by this guy, Bob Brown. A little in-depth background there. I know a lot of people really vilify Ray Cathar. We gave him his due vindication in an episode, Atari, Ray Cathar, and Warner. It just really shows just the mess that he was walking into. Exactly. Now, of course, we didn't completely let him off the hook because Cathar definitely made some missteps that were crucial to the end of Atari as well. I mean, he had his ups and downs, but we did try to give him credit where he deserved it because he does also deserve some of the credit for what Atari did. We also tried to explain that some of the things that he's vilified for aren't things that he really actually did. In this case, no, he did not cut the entirety of R&D, but he did cut one 
R&D team, the Advanced Projects Division. Continuing with the theme of this paragraph, which was people leaving the company, in February, Jay Miner also departed, unhappy that Ray Kassar would not let him begin work on a 16-bit computer design because the company had not even brought its 8-bit computers to market yet, and Kassar wanted a better sense of where Atari would fit into the new market before authorizing a next-generation project. His fellow chip designer, Joe DeCure, departed a few months later to start his own company after becoming interested in network communications technology and sensing he would not be given the opportunity to pursue the field at Atari. Fun fact, Joe DeCure is one of the people that was involved in the creation of what ultimately became the uh, Universal Serial Bus. I use USB every single day. In fact, we're recording because of USB. (laughs) That's right. He's not like the inventor of it, but he was one of the people whose work contributed to the development of that. Anywho, many of the VCS programmers were also unhappy because the removal of Brown from a management role and the elimination of the microelectronics group in 1978 had placed them under the jurisdiction of consumer engineering where most of the management and staff were analog and industrial engineers rather than digital hardware experts and did not appear to fully understand complex digital computer systems or appreciate what the programmers were accomplishing on the VCS. This is an interesting thing because the founding of Activision is often talked in terms of programmers talented, programmers deserve glory and money, dumb Ray Kassar marketing guy, marketing guy have no idea special talent, Marketing guys say programmers towel designers. Marketing guys say programmers do restaurant column. It's kind of put in those terms. But one thing that's actually in Stephen Kent's book in part of all things, though it's it's mostly in an interview that Alan Miller gave to another person on the website Digital Press. One of the things that gets lost is that the programmers weren't just being disrespected in this sense by the marketing people. The engineers in the consumer engineering group were also kind of not fully in tune with what they were doing because they were different kinds of engineers. There's many different kinds of engineers. Consumer engineering doesn't just mean programming. So you had these guys that were involved in analog stuff. You had these guys that were involved in industrial design. You had these guys that were involved in mechanical rather than electrical engineering. They also didn't fully recognize the talents of the programmers. It wasn't just the marketing guys like Ray Kassar at the top that were being ignorant. Yes, Ray Kassar didn't fully grasp the situation. He made a mistake. But so did engineers in the company, not just marketers. And this is something Alan Miller talks about in his interview. Alan Miller is the one founder of Activision I have not talked to because he has basically stopped giving interviews. I mean, it's not that he ever issued an edict saying, no more interviews from me. It's just doesn't give them anymore. (laughs) Anyone who tries to contact him for an interview just doesn't get a response. I've tried. I think that's an interesting point about the beginning of Activision as well. Engineers also didn't value the programmers. They were also unhappy with their financial compensation. In 1977, there had been talk with Joe Keenan and Bob Brown of a bonus pool generated from VCS hardware and software sales. When the VCS struggled a bit and the consumer division lost money, those promises were quickly forgotten. In the aftermath, a written bonus plan was created in 1978 based on hitting a set of vaguely defined goals, but no money was ever paid out. A few top programmers were given bonuses under the table in early 1979 after mounting discontent, but the raw feelings remained. Lack of recognition also stung some of the programmers. 
In the VCS group, a single programmer created a game from start to finish. This meant not only developing the concept and gameplay and writing the code, but also providing all of the graphics, sound effects, and music. This started changing in 1980, but in the 1979 timeframe we're talking about, it really was still entirely a one-man show. The job was made even more difficult by the limitations of the VCS hardware, which required a programmer to count cycles and implement clever tricks in order to make a system designed to play only Pong and Tank recreate the latest arcade hits. This turned out to be a rare skill set, and the top programmers in the VCS division took pride in their accomplishments. Management recognized this talent to an extent, but Atari feared headhunters poaching the best programmers for the competition and denied them individual recognition. That certainly sounds like a major misstep there. Yeah, but again, part of it was that nobody really understood that this is where the value was. It's similar to what we've talked about before in the larger computer business, how it's always hardware that the things people focus on and software is the add-on. Obviously, we're in a situation here where Atari did understand that software also had value. But you just didn't think in terms of programmers being these people that you needed to provide special perks to. Programmers were these people that just slaved away over code as not entry-level employees. I mean, it's not data entry, but just a couple of steps up from data entry. You know, it wasn't seen as as a special skill set. They screwed up, no doubt about it. But they were in good company because nobody realized what was going on at first, quite frankly. These tensions came to a head when marketing promulgated a list of the best-selling VCS titles of 1978. The purpose of the list was to indicate what types of games were proving most successful and to encourage the programmers to create similar products in the future. For Alan Miller, Larry Kaplan, David Crane, and Bob Whitehead, the list revealed that between them, they developed product responsible for roughly 60% of total cartridge sales, even though Kaplan, Crane, and Miller had spent the last few months working on the computer OS, and Bob Whitehead was largely stuck trying to wrangle video chess. Some sources say that Whitehead also worked on the operating system with the other three, but Whitehead himself says that he didn't because he was working on video chess at the time, so just as an aside there. Under these circumstances, it was hard to swallow making only around 30000 a year and not even being allowed to have their names on the boxes. Now, of course, this is 30000 in 1980s money, so it's not quite as low as it sounds, but according to them, and I haven't done research into what payrolls looked like at that time, but according to the Activision people themselves, this was a little low for an engineer. Not ridiculously low, but a little low. Alan Miller, perhaps the most business-minded of the group, decided to do something about it. Arguing that top VCS programmers had special talents and generated enormous value for the company, Miller presented Simcock with a compensation scheme based on practices in the book publishing and record industries that would provide them both recognition and a modest royalty. Simcock brought the plan to consumer engineering VP John Ellis, who agreed to take it to Kassar. For a time, it appeared, a de- it appeared a deal would be reached, but in the end, Kassar shot it down. The exact reasons for Kassar's dismissal of Miller's royalty plan are not known, but they appear rooted in his experience in the textile industry. The former Burlington executive had worked with designers for much of his life, but only on everyday commodities like home furnishings and towels. In this context, the designer was an important cog in product development, but was not singled out vis-a-vis the rest of the production staff. In a subsequent meeting between Kassar, Miller, Crane, Kaplan, and Whitehead, the CEO emphasized that the programmers were part of a team alongside the people on the production line and the sales and marketing staff, and he did not feel it appropriate to single out their contributions in the way they wanted. For Miller, this was the last straw. 
Figuring the four could do better on the open market than continuing to make cartridges for Atari, he proposed they start their own company. To launch this scheme, Miller contacted DeCure to learn what law firm he had used to organize his new startup. DeCure referred him to Art Schneiderman of Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, a firm that was fast building a reputation as the premier law firm for startups in Silicon Valley. So I've actually interviewed Art Schneiderman as well. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of the people that were here at the beginning. I've interviewed Bob Whitehead, David Crane, and Larry Kaplan. I've also interviewed Art Schneiderman. He didn't have a lot to add because he was just the outside lawyer helping to bring things together, but I did find him and contact him. Got a little information from him. At this point, Miller and his companions were unsure exactly what business to pursue. Ideas included serving as a contract developer for a console company like Atari or Mattel, or entering the emerging computer software business as a publisher. Schneiderman changed the course of their plans, and indeed of the entire video game industry, when he introduced them to a marketing executive looking to establish his own computer game startup named Jim Levy. Jim Levy is also someone I've interviewed. He is my single longest interview in a single sitting. There are a couple of people that I have interviewed for a longer period of time over multiple sessions, but Levy talked to me for three hours and 40 minutes in one sitting. Long time. At the end, he said, there are times when I've thought about writing a book about Activision, but now I've given the Activision story to you. So now you can do it, is the unsaid part of that. We had a delightful conversation, so I got a lot of background information from Jim Levy. First, I thought I'd lost the interview because I was using Audacity, and Audacity does poorly with large audio files. When I went to save it, it started thinking for a very long time. Very long time. And I didn't panic. I didn't Alt-F4 or Control-Alt-Escape or anything to shut it down because Audacity doesn't autosave as it goes, so I would have lost everything. I just waited patiently, and it finally stopped thinking and saved it. That would have been bad. There's a reason I do not use Audacity for the podcast anymore outside the first five to ten episodes. I forget where I switched over. It has issues. Yeah. That's my Jim Levy interview. And so now, of course, we have some detailed background on Jim Levy because I got it straight from the source. Born in November 1944 in Shreveport, Louisiana, James Harmon Levy showed some aptitude in math as a high school student so he matriculated to Carnegie Mellon University in 1961 to study electrical engineering. After three semesters, he realized the career path was not for him, but he was successful in several management courses, so he switched majors and remained at the school until 1966 to earn both B.S. and M.S. degrees in industrial management and industrial administration. After graduation, Levy worked for Hershey Chocolate Corporation for two years as a marketing manager, before moving to Time, Inc. as the assistant business manager of Time magazine. In 1970, he established a new publishing venture for Time called Time Life Audio to produce entertainment and information content on audio cassette for the home, business, and school markets. After three years at Time Life Audio, Levy moved to San Francisco to manage a Time subsidiary called Haverhills involved in mail-order merchandising. Around 1975, Levy left Time for GRT Corporation. Established in 1965 as General Recorded Tape, GRT was one of several companies that emerged in the late 1960s to release popular music on the new magnetic media of 8-track cartridge and compact cassette. As the major record labels were interested only in the vinyl market, they would license their music to companies like GRT rather than engage with audio cassette production and sales themselves. Levy joined GRT to start a new mail-order marketing division and later became first manager and then VP of business affairs. 
That's something I just found very interesting as a general history thing that I wasn't aware of until I started researching this, that record companies didn't want to deal with cassettes. When cassettes came along, they just told another company, you do this for us. We don't care. And then they really regretted it. Yes. Then they called that back later. I suppose it's not a surprise when you see how the music industry always has to be dragged kicking and screaming into new forms of distribution. I mean, they completely screwed up the rollout of digital music and digital distribution. So it's no surprise that they also screwed up with cassette tape. The entire music industry, you could probably do a whole episode on if it was actually pertinent to video game industry. Right, exactly. (laughs) In late 1977, a group of executives led by Vern Rayburn approached Levy with a plan to create a computer software subsidiary at GRT, since the cassette tapes the company traded in were the same medium on which computer games were published. Fun fact that doesn't appear in this book will appear in the next book. Vern Rayburn then later became the president of consumer products for Microsoft. He didn't last there long. They had issues. But yeah, he actually went on to get into the computer game industry as well because the Consumer Products Division of Microsoft did release a couple of computer games. Levy played a key role in helping them establish a software publisher named the G2 Group, which emerged as one of the few bright spots for GRT as its traditional cassette music business declined due to the record labels gradually reasserting control of their audio cassette rights in response to the proliferation of component stereo systems with tape decks. Music industry was basically like, oh, whoops, just kidding. As GRT spiraled towards bankruptcy, Levy developed a business plan in early 1979 to purchase G2 and spin it off as an independent company. To fund the G2 purchase, Levy turned to the same Art Schneiderman working with Miller and Company, whom he had worked with on several deals at GRT. Schneiderman worked in the same building as pioneering venture capitalist Bill Draper, who had co-founded the first venture fund in Silicon Valley in 1958 and now managed a firm he co-founded in 1964 called Sutter Hill and got Levy a meeting with him. When Levy attended the meeting, he learned that Draper owned a TRS-80 and was frustrated by the lack of quality software for the computer. The venture capitalist gladly agreed to fund Levy's acquisition attempt. With Draper's backing, Levy attempted to negotiate the buyout with GRT, but management was busy trying to save the firm, and in late May 1979, he was told no one would negotiate with him. The next month, GRT collapsed. Meanwhile, Levy called Schneiderman over Memorial Day weekend to relay the bad news. Days later, Schneiderman called Levy to arrange a meeting that same afternoon with Kaplan, Miller, Whitehead, and Crane, who required both an experienced executive and funding to launch their proposed startup. By the end of the meeting, all parties agreed to explore working together. One thing that's kind of unfortunate about some of the popular histories of Activision is they really focus on the Atari programmers because, of course, they're interested in the games. They're interested in that aspect of it. They describe the Atari programmers as the founders of Activision. And three of four of them were founders of Activision. One of them wasn't. We'll get to that in the book in the second. But Levy was also a co-founder. This wasn't a situation where the programmers got together and said, okay, we're going to found a company together. Now, because we're not management people, we also need to hire a manager to manage the company. That's not what this was. Levy was a partner from the start. There would be no Activision without Jim Levy as well as the Activision people. He is a co-founder. It's important, I think, to give him that recognition, which some of the popular histories don't. Over the next few weeks, Levy and the Atari programmers met frequently to continue feeling each other out on the specifics of their partnership. By late July, they had decided to work together and focus their efforts on developing and publishing software for the VCS. Levy wrote a business plan over the next few weeks and delivered it to Sutter Hill on August 23, 1979. 
I have several specific dates in here, and that's because the court testimony enshrined those specific dates in the record. In this plan, Levy did not present the potential enterprise as a technology company, but rather as a creative company developing product for a new entertainment medium. He also defined the company's product area as software for home computer systems generally, though he acknowledged that the short-term plan was to focus on the most developed platform, the Atari VCS. Despite requiring double the investment as Levy's previous proposal of buying out GRT, Sutter Hill agreed to fund the venture. In summer 1979, the four Atari programmers began leaving the company one by one. Larry Kaplan was the first to depart in June, followed by Alan Miller and David Crane in August. Bob Whitehead stayed the longest, as the family man did not want to jeopardize his livelihood until he was certain the company was moving forward. On the advice of counsel, none of them took any materials when they left to avoid credible accusations of stealing trade secrets. Even as the programmers began to depart Atari, there was no guarantee they would end up joining Levy. In fact, Alan Miller, the most gung-ho among the group about creating a new company, nearly backed out of the venture at one point because he worried Levy was, quote, not entrepreneurial enough, unquote, to make it successful. That's something that was revealed to me by Levy himself. That's not something Miller has talked about in interviews. I have no reason to doubt it. The financial arrangement also gave some pause. Sutter Hill was willing to provide several hundred thousand dollars worth of financing, but most of it was in the form of a loan. The company also demanded that each founder make a substantial upfront investment in the firm and that they each take a pay cut from their Atari salaries, which were already slightly low for an engineer in the Valley. After evaluating the risks and potential rewards, Crane, Miller, and Whitehead decided to see the plan through. At the last second, Larry Kaplan dropped out. In the weeks leading up to the incorporation of the firm, the Atari programmers met with other suitors, including Chuck Peddle at Commodore. Peddle convinced Kaplan that rather than go through the hassle of starting a company, reverse engineering hardware, and setting up manufacturing and distribution, he should work with Commodore, where all of this would be provided. Kaplan joined a startup supported by Commodore working on speech recognition software, but after a couple of months it was clear the company was going nowhere, so Kaplan returned to the fold in December 1979. Because he joined late, his stock award was half of the other three founding programmers. So that's another mistake that is often made. In addition to Jim Levy not being recognized as a co-founder, Larry Kaplan almost always is recognized as a co-founder of Activision, and he was not. He was involved in the early discussions, but by the time Activision came into existence, by the time it was incorporated, Kaplan had decided not to do it. He was not a founding member. He came back two months later and said, uh, change my mind, sorry guys, let's do this. But by then the company was already incorporated, so he was not a founder. The four founders of Activision are Alan Miller, David Crane, Bob Whitehead, and Jim Levy. Larry Kaplan is a Johnny-come-lately. One of the more difficult tasks for the founders ended up being naming the company. In the business plan, Levy referred to it as Video Computer Arts, but this was merely a placeholder indicating the mission of the company and was never intended as a final name. After some deliberation, Levy decided to call it Computer Vision to signify that the company was developing products that merged a computer with a television set, but this name was already in use by another company. During a brainstorming session to generate a new name, Levy focused on the interactive nature of the company's products by combining the words active and television to name the company Activision, which is why the name of this chapter is only semi-cleverly named Active Television. Activision Incorporated on October 1st, 1979. 
The company's first order of business was to ensure it could deliver product for the VCS in a way that did not violate Atari's rights to the system. Now, this is where the patent case came in very helpful. Now, the the patent case that I have is not about Atari's patents. It's one of the Magnavox lawsuits, which we've talked about before. They went into great detail in that case about how they created their product in a way that would not violate Atari's patents, even though the suit wasn't about those patents. So that's where a lot of the insight comes into in what they were doing in this area. Even before the company incorporated, Levy began working closely with an intellectual property attorney named Aldo Test to determine the most likely grounds upon which Atari might sue Activision for infringement. They agreed the major sticking point would be the design of the cartridges, as Atari had taken out two patents related to their mechanical engineering and design. These patents constituted Atari's main bulwark against unauthorized publishing on the VCS, and the company felt confident that they would keep competing companies off its system. Of course, one of the things about the VCS that is not true about later systems that were more effective at deterring unauthorized games is that there was no lockout chip. There was no mechanism where there's a program on the console and there's a program on your cartridge or on your whatever your media is, and they have to interact with each other in order for something to work. There was no way to stop a program from someone else from working. What Atari thought that they had a lock on, and their legal counsel, Skip Paul, according to people I've talked to at Atari, was extremely and totally confident that this would be enough, is that the way the cartridge was designed and the way the cartridge locked into the system, that was something they patented because those were design and engineering things that were unique to their system that they could apply for a patent on. Skip Paul, the legal counsel, was convinced that this would stop any unauthorized companies because the only way they would be able to make a game that worked on a VCS system was in order to make a cartridge that could lock into the system using the locking mechanism in the VCS, and that's patented. So if you can do that, you're violating the patents. That was how Atari hoped that they could keep people off the system. The real question then is, how did they get around it? Exactly. I did some brand new research into that that nobody had done before, which was kind of cool. Guided in part by Levy and by the transcript of the trial that I had. Once Activision Incorporated, Levy contracted with an injection molding plastics expert who had previously worked on the early Atari cartridges named Howard Moulin to help develop a working cartridge that would not run afoul of Atari's patents. So I actually tracked this guy down too. So Levy remembered the name Howard Moulin when he talked to me. That was from our interview, not from his trial transcript. And that was a name that he remembered. And so then I looked up Howard Moulin and I actually found him. He is still in the injection molded plastics business. He has his own company still. And so I actually found this guy, Howard Moulin, and we had a short interview. There wasn't a lot to get from him because he was just involved in stuff in a very tangential way. But he was able to tell me a a little bit about what they did to get around these patent problems. Moline, in turn, brought in the designers of the Fairchild Channel F cartridges, Ron Smith and Nick Tails for, to design the Activision cartridge. Smith determined that the primary mechanism on which the patent hinged was a door that opened to expose the edge connectors on the cartridge when it was inserted into the VCS. While intended to protect the internals of the cartridge, Smith and Tails for determined after extensive testing that the cartridge worked just fine without the door and it would be safe to remove it. That's basically how they got around it. You know, if you happen to have an old Atari cartridge lying around your house and an old Activision cartridge lying around, you can kind of peek underneath there probably and see that there's that little 
door that stops the uh, the pin connectors from the edge connectors from being generally exposed. And that's something Atari did because this was the olden times and they were afraid that that was something that they needed in order to protect things. Then it turned out that it wasn't needed. While Moulin, Smith & Tails 4 designed a new cartridge, David Crane led efforts to reverse engineer the VCS. Because, of course, they couldn't take a VCS with them and just flat-out copy it because that would be a violation of Atari's trade secrets. We've talked about this before. If you want to create a working facsimile, a working copy of a piece of technology someone else has created, you have to do clean room engineering where you just poke at something and recreate it without knowing how any of it works. So that's what they did. This isn't a full clean room engineering operation where you have one person that does the poking and a completely separate, isolated person that is told by the person doing the poking, we need something that does this, this, and this, and then comes up with it themselves. So it's not a full clean room. But they did reverse engineer. They didn't take any Atari documentation with them when they left because they knew that would open them up to a trade secrets litigation. As the programmers were careful not to take anything with them from Atari, including development materials, he started by buying a VCS at retail and opening it up. Once he did so, he discovered an unused 24-pin ROM port on the board, which had presumably been included due to the original marketing plan for the system calling for one or two games being built into the hardware. So they would have needed another ROM on the board in order to put those built-in games. Since they decided not to do that to save money, there was just an empty uh, connector on the board, just waiting for Crane to work his magic. Crane soldered a zero insertion force socket to the board and burned simple programs onto EEPROM so he could observe how the system reacted to various inputs. Within just a few weeks, he had assembled a programming manual for the machine. He then fashioned a development system consisting of a small, custom-built 6502 computer that plugged into the VCS cartridge slot and could interface with a PDP-11 mini-computer. The system was affectionately called the Blue Box for its blue sheet metal enclosure. Meanwhile, Levy began putting the company infrastructure in place. In November, he hired a recently dismissed plastic sales rep whom Moline knew named Clifton Crowder to build a sales and distribution infrastructure. In January 1980, he hired an executive at a small Bay Area manufacturing company named Alan Epstein to run operations. Another guy that I have interviewed. Though I had not actually interviewed him at the time of this book. None of his insights are in this section. There's probably one or two little things I could put in on the interview relating to the founding of the company. Most of the stuff that he was most helpful on was stuff a little later on, so it's stuff that's appearing in book two anyway. But yeah, I did track down Alan Epstein. When the January 1980 CES rolled around, the company was not ready to announce any product, but Crowder took meetings at the show to begin constructing a sales network. On January 31st, Activision received a letter signed by Ray Kassar warning that if the company took advantage of any Atari trade secrets to violate any Atari patents, it could expect a lawsuit. In May, Atari sued Activision for $20 million. In early 1981, Atari filed an amendment to its suit asking for $1 million in punitive damages alongside its other requested remedies. Thanks to the sound legal advice of Schneiderman and Test, the careful reverse engineering and cartridge design work done by Crane, Moulin, Smith, and Tails for, Atari did not have a leg to stand on and the company settled in December. Now, I may have overstated that a little bit. Many sources report, and I haven't been able to track it to an original contemporaneous source, so I'm hesitant to be 100% this is true, but it's probably true. The settlement did include Activision having to pay a royalty to Atari on games it created. So Atari did get a little something out of Activision. Activision probably did that because they weren't completely convinced that they would win in court. 
So saying Atari did not have a leg to stand on is probably too strong of a phrase. But it is true that because of all the careful legal work they did in advance, all the legal advice they got, and all the reverse engineering that they did, that it was going to be very hard for Atari to prove that they really violated any patents. Atari knew this, and that's why they came to a settlement. Activision announced its first four games in March 1980 and released them in July. These were Boxing by Bob Whitehead, Dragster and Fishing Derby by David Crane, and Checkers by Alan Miller. While all four games featured simple gameplay, they sported fantastic graphics relative to other VCS games because the programmers realized their products would need to stand out from the Atari lineup visually in order to entice consumers to buy from the new company. For instance, boxing, played from an overhead perspective, featured large sprites and smooth animations, even if the boxers looked a little like crabs. So we talked about this a little bit in our big Activision VCS episode, where we weren't focusing so much on the company and the founding of the company, but on the early games it released. We talked kind of about their philosophy towards doing this kind of thing. They both made sure that they used their incredible skills with the system to use all sorts of clever programming tricks to make graphics that were impressive, but they also made sure to do little things like good color selection, because the Atari had a limited color palette, and many of those colors were pretty unpalatable. By taking an artist's sensibility to this and not just doing what colors may be convenient, they made sure that they used the best colors for the games they were doing. I think David Crane was a big part of that because his mother was an artist and he had more of an artist sensibility than some of the other early VCS programmers. I mean, the Activision people themselves have said he was definitely the most talented graphical person and the most talented artist of the group, and he often helped out the other programmers in doing their graphics, as we discussed in our Activision VCS Games episode. Being graphics forward is something that was very important to them, and this is something that Crane told me in our interview, was that graphics was the place that they really wanted to stand out from Atari because they knew that they could make an impact there and that this is something that would draw in consumers. That's definitely reflected here. The cream of the crop was arguably Dragster, a take on a 1977 Atari arcade game called Drag Race, in which one or two players race cars presented in a side view on a split screen. The game sold roughly 500,000 copies and provided half of Activision's first-year revenues. Activision released four more games before the end of its first fiscal year. In December 1980, the company introduced Kaplan's first game, Bridge, as well as a skiing game by Whitehead. In March 1981, these were joined by Miller's Tennis and Laser Blast by David Crane. Once again, Crane's game led the field. Laser Blast was born of a desire to emulate the popular shooting games in the arcade like Space Invaders and Missile Command, but reversed the action by placing the player above the surface of a planet to shoot at turrets on the surface. Crane did this because he felt too many shooting games focused on defending a planet, so he wanted a game where the player recaptured his planet instead. Recaptured is one way that they put it to try to make it seem less violent and whatnot. But Crane has also said in interviews that he wanted one where you're conquering the planet instead. Recapturing may have been uh, marketing speak to make that feel less hurtfully aggressive. But Crane was basically like, yeah, instead of being on the surface and shooting stuff coming at us, let's blow up all the stuff on the surface. Let's be the aggressor. Crane also delivered a new technical breakthrough when he figured out how to reposition the ball sprite on every line to give the illusion of a continuous laser blast emanating from the player's ship. We talked about that specifically in our VCS Activision game episode. It's actually really cool. Yeah, but as as a brief recap, you know, the VCS could only generate five sprites 
one of which was a one-bit ball sprite meant to be used for ball and paddle games like Pong. There were various tricks for reusing sprites, reusing them line by line, and Crane came up with a specific trick so that this little one-bit wide ball sprite could be redrawn again and again and again to look like a long, narrow, continuous line, which he then animated to look like a laser. With slick gameplay derived from the biggest arcade hits, Laser Blast became the first Activision game to sell one million units over its lifetime. Levy kept his promise to promote the game designers, combining practices from the music and book publishing industries to provide them recognition. Each game box identified the designer of the game on the back, while the instruction menu included tips and tricks from the designer on how to master the game, accompanied by a headshot and a signature. This not only promoted the designers, but created a dialogue and sense of connection between them and their player base. This sense of shared experience with Activision games was further amplified through a clever marketing ploy, emulating the score chasing currently dominating the arcade. For most games, the company established a point or time limit threshold for a player to aspire to achieve. If the player reached the goal and submitted a photograph of his television screen as proof, Activision would mail him a patch to commemorate the achievement. So that was kind of cool because at this time, the real draw at the arcade was beating high scores and you had players competing with each other to get the highest score on the game. You can't really do that in the home in the same way, but by doing this whole patch thing where if you reached a certain point threshold, you got a recognition for that, it was a similar thing to the high scores in the arcade and kind of appealed to the same kind of player. So that was smart. Not to mention you can go into school with all those patches on your jacket and show off. That's right. In its first fiscal year, Activision achieved sales of $6.5 million and a profit of $744,000 while grabbing an estimated 5% of the video game market. The company was poised to do even better in fiscal 1982 as home video game sales surged to new heights driven by a series of massive hits in the coin-operated space that briefly turned video games into the most profitable entertainment category in the United States. That's where the chapter ends, and that transition there is because, of course, I'm switching back and forth between all the major areas, coin-op, console, home computer. So I'd been talking about home games for three chapters at this point, so that final sentence is a way of transitioning back to the arcade again, in, in which I start talking about the big hits of 1980 and 1981, most notably Defender and Pac-Man. For those chapters, you'll have to check out the, the book in, in some form or another, for we have reached the end of chapter 32 and uh, reached the end of our discussion today. But what about Mediagenic? <laughs> well, we have a whole episode devoted to that. That is much later in, in Activision's history and is a much maligned period in the history, though, as we always try to do. Uh, we provide a little balance in our episode on Mediagenic and show the ways that Bruce Davis, the person behind the name change, actually did good at the company, as well as highlight the ways in, in which he did less good. That's what we always try to do, is provide a balanced portrayal and a portrayal that doesn't just say, yay, programmers good, boo, marketers, business people bad, but shows where each side's made contributions and, and where each side kind of screwed up, which happens from time to time. All right, so this is a little bit of a shorter episode. I guess the only thing we can really do is point you to more information if you want more of the complete story. We have two episodes dealing with Activision and Mediagenics. I'll have that in the show notes. We will also have links to the Activision Atari situation that goes on here, which goes more into depth about what Alex just read. 
from our take from a standard episode. Before Alex runs off to the coast of Atlanta and Georgia, far away from me, leaving me all alone, <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to drag him back to the recording studio and ask him, what are we going to talk about in our next episode? That's right. So again, the next episode is going to be a little atypical as well. These three episodes, of which this is the middle of the three, were kind of designed to be things where we could still provide some interesting content and hopefully some entertainment, but would be things where I would not have to do in-depth research in advance because my life has become incredibly chaotic and will remain so for another couple of months. Next uh, episode, we're going to, instead of doing our own work, so to speak, we're going to once again turn outward and look at some of the great work that other people are doing in video game history. We did this once before, fairly early in the history of the podcast. I'm sure Jeffrey can tell me exactly when. Yes, that episode is They Create Worlds, episode 24, The Project and Others in the Field. That was released on August 15th, 2016, many, many years ago. Yeah, very early in the podcast, and so there's a lot of wonderful work that's been done since. A big part of They Create World's mission is to get the history right and to make sure that we are correcting some of the bad errors that have crept into the quote-unquote traditional stories from sources like Kent and Chef that were well-meaning but didn't always have all of the facts. We're not the only people dedicated to this. We also like to highlight people that are doing similar work to our own and are doing a great job at getting to the bottom of various elements of video game history. And some of these people have podcasts. Some of these people have blogs. Some of these people have YouTube channels. So we'd like to take an episode and talk a little bit about some of the research that others are doing and highlight some of that research and also deliver some of the findings of that research to our listeners. So there will be an element of discussing video game history to it as well. But this is definitely a good time to do that again, both because it's been so long and because it means, quite frankly, that we have less of our own prep to do to get an episode out to all you fine people. Or at least you have less you have to do. I got to edit all this stuff. <laughs> yes. All right, so we will see you next time on They Create Worlds, where we will look at how everyone else has done things in the field of video game history research. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Please give us a review. Getting the word out helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 